Levo to the right hand, puts her down. He's going to dump him hard to the ice. Brady Levo just loves to fight. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. My dream of being a professional hockey player became a reality, but it was all taken away from me in a very short period of time. For many years, hockey was my outlet. Hockey was my drug. When I had a stick in my hand, nothing else mattered. I was able to break into the Western Hockey League in 2004, and I even won the Swift Current Broncos Rookie of the Year. During the summer of my rookie year, I experimented with drugs for the first time. After just seven games in my sophomore season, I walked away from the Swift Current Broncos due to personal reasons. Nobody knew I had been sexually abused at the age of five. I did everything to hide it from everybody, but I just couldn't take it. Drugs and alcohol now took over my life. I did return to the Swift Current Broncos as a 19-year-old, but things were never the same. I was eventually traded to the Kelowna Rockets in my final year of junior where I got to play on a line with the Dallas Stars captain, Jamie Benn, and one of my best friends, the extremely talented Colin Long. It was by far my best season ever, and I even signed with the Tampa Bay Lightning's organization. A dream come true, right? That's when everything went wrong. First it was the cocaine, then came the Oxycontin, and that led me into a 12-year journey into the deepest pits of hell. Within two years, I had now made the switch to heroin, fentanyl, and everything in between, and I was now an intravenous drug user. Multiple suicide attempts and over five trips to the psych ward, I was a shadow of who I once was. By 2014, I was homeless on Hastings in Vancouver, the worst street in North America. By 2015, I was a wanted criminal, making the Crime Stopper headlines more than once. After spending three years in jail, I had completely given up. With nowhere to turn and nowhere to go, I finally started to get honest. I took a chance and made some major changes. This is my story. I overdosed over 10 times. I'm one of the lucky ones. And for that, I will always be grateful. This is for all the men and women we've lost. Matthew Lazinski, Mitch Fadden, this one's for you. My name's Brady Leibold, and I've been to hell and back. This is the road to recovery. What is going on, everybody? Welcome. Hockey to Hell and Back, episode number 111. Of course, I'm Brady Leibold, coming at you guys live from chilly muskoka ontario i got the toucan i'm freezing cold i'm not gonna lie i'm cold uh thanks for thanks for watching if you're watching live if you're watching after the fact or listening thank you so much uh we're gonna get right into the episode uh tonight because my guest is on the road and we're on a bit of a crunch time crunch time here he's a busy busy man but before uh, we go any further i just uh, want to take a moment and i want to dedicate this episode uh to andre payad who is a, a former professional hockey player 18 year pro um Calder Cup champion, drafted by the Philadelphia Flyers, uh, played for the Sioux Greyhounds and the Kingston Frontenacs in the OHL. And uh, today, the hockey world uh, lost Andre. 
and uh, I'm not going to touch too much more on the story or how it happened. Um, but I did get some confirmation and I just want to send my deepest, deepest condolences to the entire Payette family, uh, all the friends and everybody feeling this tragic loss. Uh, it's, you know, it's been a common theme in my life, uh, getting these messages in my inbox over the last two years. And, you know, in the last, I would say, 13 months, there are several hockey players uh, that have lost their lives uh, due to substances and or suicide. And, uh, you know, we're just really trying to use hockey as a vehicle to bring more awareness to this because we know it's not necessarily a hockey problem at all. Uh, but this is something that happens everywhere. And uh, my heart is broken. Uh, my deepest condolences to the Payette family. Uh, we'll talk more about it. I know he was just on uh, Sean McMorrow's podcast, and I'm going to have the sheriff on soon. So we'll talk more about Andre in the near future. Uh, but like I said, my heart goes out to his entire family and all those feeling the loss at this time. Hi there, it's Regan Bartell, the play-by-play voice of the Kelowna Rockets, Brady Leobold's biggest fan. Team Issued is connecting all walks of life. Team Issued does this by recreating that special feeling of being a part of something bigger. A community for all striving towards the same goal. Teamissued.ca, promo code TOEDRAG15 for 15% off. All right, let's do it. Let's uh, let's get right into the episode. I'm super pumped uh, to bring this guy on. I'm not going to do a long drawn out intro. I know he likes to talk too. So and his stories, what he's been up to. I'm just so excited to have him back on. Let's bring him in, my buddy Adam Scorgi. What's going on? What is going on, man? It's been what you were on this show over. I would say over two years ago. You were one of my first guests. Thank you for that. Was it that long ago already? I guess COVID. COVID kind of makes that year blended where it's long and short at the same time. You kind of forget that almost like two years was lost. I know. I, I know, and and you've been uh, you've been really busy since then, and I've been a fan uh, before we met, and we haven't met in person yet, but you know we've stayed pretty connected over the last two years. Uh, you know, at least being in communication every couple months. So thank you for the support and friendship, uh, and uh, shout out to your daughter Riley, who uh, supports us over here at Puck Support, and what what she's doing is incredible. You must be just such a proud dad. Oh, my pleasure, and yeah, I'm I'm very proud. I mean, she's a hard worker. She's uh... It's fun to watch her go through that uh, journey, the hockey journey, because it's new and it's a perfect time for girls because the sport's really growing for them now. It seems to be a, and she just actually moved teams. So she was with the St. Albert Slash last year, which had won three national titles. And then now she's with the first of its kind in Canada, but it is, she's now on the junior Oilers AAA program, which is the first NHL team uh, to be, or first amateur teams to be sponsored by an NHL team. So it's incredible. Uh, jerseys last night so i never thought i'd see a scorgy on the back of an oilers jersey so it's pretty cool to see her because it's the full nhl it's not even like a juniors like they just have the logo marks and they're able to use the nhl official jersey of the oilers so uh go oilers go we'll have an entirely different uh uh energy and passion this year i am a diehard oilers fan 
But to see my daughter wearing an Oilers jersey and get to cheer for her is really cool. Yeah, well, she's incredible. And, uh, you know, she's pretty big on social media. And I know I am essentially partnered with True and this uh, show is as well. But shout out to her because she's done some work with Sherwood and what they've done and, uh, you know, giving her the exposure. But I mean, she deserves it. I'm sure a lot of people have probably seen it on Instagram, the new Sherwood campaign, but she's been a part of it. And it looks so good on her. looks like she had a blast. So uh, that's what happens when, when you work hard, right? Like she worked hard for it. Um, you know, we could talk a little bit more about that later, but I kind of want to get into, uh, I don't want to air out her dirty laundry because, you know, it's not my business, but I know it hasn't been easy uh, through that journey is why I'm kind of passing on that. It's an interesting thing. I, it, it, I, I, you know, with it is like all things with success comes negativity and stuff too. Right. So obviously at times like she gets super targeted at tournaments, right. Because people are like, Oh, you're the big Instagram girl. And then like, you know, they're expecting her to score like four goals a game, but the girls game's very low scoring when you have the game, like the goalies are awesome. The girls can skate and the girls can't shoot like the guys. That's the genetic difference in the game. They just don't have the wrist and the, the quick muscle fibers. So not to say there aren't some great shooters. There certainly are, but they don't have the strength of the guys, but they can skate extremely yeah. well. So the game is different. And I, I say to people too, and they're like, do you really like watching the girls game? If it wasn't your daughter. I'm like, I love it. Cause like any game, once you know the characters is what matters. Cause even me, like, I'll watch NHL highlights, but I'm not tuning into New Jersey. I could give a shit about that team or other teams. I tune into the that I know the characters and the players, and I tune into that team. So it's the same with the girls. Once you know the characters, like now I watch even, my wife is like, are you watching a U15 girls game? I'm like, well, yeah, it's Riley's friend, Jordan, and this one here. And like, it's exciting when you know the characters. You want to see them, right? So now that the girls are finally getting exposure it's been great and riley's had tremendous success he's had been hired by sherwood a couple times all expenses paid getting paid you know really good money for a 14 15 year old or 16 now right to do these campaigns to make videos like like when she gets her checks i'm like riley i had to work all summer to get a check like that and you go out to do go get to do what you love and you make some tiktok videos and stuff like that and get paid like it's awesome but, but yes definitely with all that great success there's been a lot of negativity too. She gets, you know, a lot of, a lot of those crazy hockey parents and, and other kids and stuff that take it the wrong way. And to me, it's the one thing I've kind of noticed as a parent that the girls game still has some evolving to do is that women need to support women more because the game's just starting to grow. It's like a lot of times when a girl has success, other girls are like, she's not that good. She shouldn't have made team Canada or she shouldn't. Instead of just being like, Hey, how about, supporting her like i always tell riley i'm like how about supporting her and think you played against her all year last year you know you beat her in face-offs use it as like that's how close you are right that she's making it and you're right there playing against some of those best players rather than looking at as as a negative thing but you know no i couldn't be more proud of her and i'm excited to keep watching this journey as it goes as uh i'm a first-time dad through competitive sports like this so and now i see my boys they're going to go in a different direction with jujitsu and other things but uh I, I am very proud and it's it's fun to go on this journey with her because I, I sure as hell didn't have that kind of talent. <laughs> yeah, well, it's fun. It's fun to watch. I see the jujitsu and, and of course, Riley on Instagram and uh, to see the success that everyone's having. But it always comes back to like hard work. People always wonder. People can hate all they want, but people are not 
succeeding for any other reason than they've worked for it. If you see somebody that's making something look easy or they're doing well, well, guess what? You don't see the hours and hours and the commitment that it takes to get there. So to anyone else out there that gets hate, and I'm one of them too, that's something that's really important to remember. Usually you're doing something right if people are looking for for reasons to hate on you and you're not really doing anything wrong. So um, catch me up. Catch me up. That's actually one of my lines before you go to the next thing. I always have said, I learned this line when I was 15 years old and I tell it to my kids all the time. The only reason why people trash talk is because you're doing something right, right? Perfect example, Brady, when you were down in the dumps and the world seemed against you, right? And you brought, no one was shit talking you then, right? Because you're, you're not doing, you're, you're, you're in the pit of despair. You're in hell as you put it yourself, right? Now that you're climbing up and you've turned your world around, now people almost get and i see some of the comments occasionally it's very few because most of these are very positive and i you know but you'll see some people go oh, whatever you were an addict and it was like yeah but now he's climbed out of it and things are coming and you're having a lot of success and you're having these great guests on and you've got a purpose you're helping other people with puck support and then other people kind of be like well i look like a lazy ass now so what do they do they hate on you right rather than looking at themselves and being like Oh, really? Look at a guy that was motivated, got himself sober, worked really hard and is doing well. Instead of being happy for you, it's their own insecurities that push out that negativity, right? So the only reason why people trash talk is because you're doing something right. Yeah, it's it's true. And to sit here and say that I haven't been that person on the other side who was hating on that that person who was succeeding would be a lie because I've been in that position. But, you know, it, it comes down to you got to put in the effort. You got to work hard. And you've been doing uh, just that. <laughs> Seems like you're nonstop. Catch me up a little bit about what's been going on with Adam Scorgy, Scorgy Productions, and kind of what oh. that's been. Because you've been everywhere and had a tremendous amount of success. Congratulations, man. From I think the last time we talked to you, you've done several uh you know, pictures, documentaries, whatever you call it. Sorry, I don't know the right terminology, but they've all been they've, they've all been knockouts, man. So like good job. Looks so good on you. You guys are fantastic. But catch me up. Thanks, brother. Well, yeah, I think since we last talked, like the Bisbing documentary released with Universal Pictures about uh, former UFC champion and Hall of Famer Michael Bisbing, which turned out great. We actually were just on, we were just meeting with Universal uh, the other day to talk about it, and uh, it looks like it's broken a whole bunch of records for them, even surpassed uh, the Conor McGregor documentary, Notorious in Sales. So, uh, and the only other doc that had beaten both of those or the, the other doc that had been that successful for them was uh, inmate number one, the rise of Danny Trejo, which we also sold to Universal. So uh, look, you had those right ready to go. Eh? So they uh, so uh, needless to say, we're in very good standing to the Universal and looks like they're really interested uh, in our newest film that I partnered with uh, Seven Bucks Productions, which is the Rocks company, uh, about seven time bodybuilder, seven time excuse me, Mr. Olympia champion, Phil the Gift Heath. Um, if all goes well, then we might have our third studio release back to back to back, the three-peat with Universal Pictures again. And uh, yeah, Universal actually just messaged to see if we'd be in LA next week just to hang out. Some of their bosses and other people want to meet us because we're having continued success to see other ways we can work together. So it's, uh, and, and we're currently in production right now in Dolph Lundgren's documentary that's in production right now. Uh, we just greenlit one about Biff Naked, and then we're about to get started on Dane Cook here. In the, I guess we're we're in the fall now, but uh, yeah, I, to say things have been busy would be an understatement. We are. I, I'm almost at the point where I'm like, I don't know how much more bandwidth I have. Like I, I got approached this week about a couple other things. I was like, seriously, guys, I'd love to help, but normally I'm the guy. It's like, yeah, I'm in. Yeah, I'm in. Yeah, I'm in. 
but I, I had to say no. And so they're like, well, we just want you as a consultant. I'm like, unfortunately, time is my most valuable asset right now. And what I would bill you to, and they're like, no, we'll pay. I'm like, no, what I would bill you to be a consultant on your project, you don't, you don't want it because it's going to be an, an absurd number because I'm too busy right now. So, and then I, and I, I would never want to do that to somebody on their production. So um, it's good to be that busy. I'm, I'm feeling blessed, but it's, uh, you know, if my kid's so active and stuff right now too, I try to have that business life balance. I try not to get as much as I love what I do and I travel the world and I get to tell these incredible stories and inspire the world in a positive way. I don't like to miss what's going on with my family. That's always kind of, that's why I live in Edmonton, Alberta. People are like, why don't you live in LA or New York? I'm like, I like raising a family in Edmonton. I like going to the madness, the big premiere, the shoot, wherever. And then I come back to Canada and everybody's like, but the cold, I'm like, yeah, the cold keeps me humble. makes me realize life's got two sides, right? Like, so I, I like it. It's a good reality check for, for me instead of being in LA or La La Land, as they call it all the time. I, I honestly couldn't imagine. I can't even stand going to Toronto. I'm in Muskoka and I can't even stand the thought. Like when I go to Toronto, it's like fun. It's a fun little adventure. And then I'm in traffic and I'm like, I just want to get back. And every time I get back into Muskoka, it's just like, thank. Like, I just, I, I couldn't be bothered. But uh, a couple of things that came up for me when you're talking about that, it's, you know, the life family balance, I think is really hard. I, I noticed myself for sure, but I think a lot of other people can identify that too. Uh, just life has changed so much in the, in the last few years, especially with like technology and stuff. There's just so many more things that are pulling, uh, pulling us in different directions, new opportunities, new connections, all of it, which provides, you know, these, these things that you're now having to say no to. It seems like the world's been uh, kind of opened up, but I'd love to know about your journey through filmmaking because you know you did the union i think what was that 2000 like 2007 five yeah that released 2007 uh and then i think it's or maybe 2000 i think it, it it did its festivals in 2007 but it officially released like commercially in 2009 um and you want to talk about like, you know, I, I know they say you got to be good to be lucky and lucky to be good or however it goes or, but I mean, and there's so many ways that that should have failed. And I look back now and I see young filmmakers that are passionate and excited about a concept, kind of like I was with the union back in the day. And I'm like, Oh man, you guys have no idea the world, the, the road ahead that you have of work and like, and I want to help them. And I also want to not be negative to just bring the realities of how much work they have. Right. Just being like, Oh, we all thought we were going to make a film and sell it for millions of dollars and do our next project, right? But that isn't how it works. So, you know, the union was, but it ended up being, and this can also go to, you know, I like to look at it as you, that after the union, you could have really looked at it as two ways. I could look at the glass half empty or half full. The union was a huge success as far as critical acclaim and demonstrating that me and my team could overcome all the adversities, do an independent doc, do it on marijuana or cannabis at the time, which was so taboo, make a global impact, become a cult classic, you know, do all these things that essentially was like my resume to, or my, my film school to then get into filmmaking full time and not it be a hobby. But if you were to look financially, the amount of time, effort and commitment put in to what was made in money would make zero sense. Like any guy that's straight businessman would be like, that is a horrible investment. You guys spent almost five years making that thing. You made no money. You still owed your investors a little bit of money. We recouped the investors like 80, 90. They only owed 
like 29,000 was outstanding, but you know, we'd boarded, borrowed over a quarter million. So on your first film to even recoup that much was a hell of a big win. Right. So it's funny cause I don't borrow that much. Like I never have a gap that big on my films. Now when they're bigger names, you want to hedge your bets and try to mitigate the risk as much as possible. So you, you know, this is where in life you can choose how you want to look at that. You could look at that as a big failure and you could dwell on it and be like, Oh man, like, we won these awards, we didn't make money and we suck. Or like my team did is we're like, okay, let's use that as a catapult to show that we can deliver, that we can overcome the huge investment, you know, the setbacks, the tons and tons of mistakes we made and how to clear it, how to get it legal and all that kind of stuff. Right. And that's what we did. And then it took, if you look at my gap on IMDb, that's why there's like a three or four or five year gap between that film and my next film because it took a while to learn how to make it a business and not a hobby. Your next film's at uh, Ice Guardians? No, Ice Guardians came eight years late. So no, the next one was I worked, I just helped as a line producer because I felt I needed to learn a bit more on the business side, got working with a company, couldn't make it a hobby. So I worked for Network Entertainment. I did The Good Son, The Life of Ray Boom Boom Mancini. And then I also line produced on... Uh, I am Bruce Lee. And then they ended up, the producers ended up doing some shysty stuff with The Good Son. So then I ended up co-producing it and finishing it and delivering once again. And then from there, we did Culture High and then Ice Guardians came. But shows you how long it takes is that I was pitching Ice Guardians before any of those other films were even like thought of, right? So it took that long to kind of bring, because again, I had to learn how to do it from scratch and how to make sure that you know, we didn't just spend a whole bunch of money and not recoup it. And then when you're selling hockey in general, outside of Canada, it doesn't have a big market, right? So now again, and I would let you, Brady, and others speak to it, like Ice Guardians now has become a huge cult classic in the hockey community. If you were to name top 10 hockey docs ever made, I think Ice Guardians is always in that top five argument in there now. Uh, might be some other ones, Untold, creeping in there. The 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 Danbury Trashers one, which I just watched actually last week, and I was like, oh, I can see where everybody likes this one so much. Like the story's so outrageous, you're like, this has to be a movie, but no, it happened. <laughs> yeah, it's got it's got definitely got the shock factor. It's like, really? Come yeah. on, come on. Runs the team, he makes the finals, and like paying these guys and like it you know loosely based on like well they say not the sopranos but was the sopranos like garbage like involved like as i was watching i'm like no way and you know and then at the start you don't like like the main the young guy that took over because they kind of set it but by the end you kind of you're kind of rooting for him a little bit you're like oh man like i like it he made the team work he he brought excitement to the game and yeah i i understand why everybody was talking about it. i was like adam you got to see it you got to see it and it was funny because I think that story came by my desk. I think shortly after Ice Guardian, somebody's like, oh, you got to do this. And I was like, man, I, I just did a whole thing on Enforcers. And I, I kind of put my heart and soul into it. I'm not ready to kind of, I didn't dive into the whole story about the family and all that. Like, that's what made it interesting is it was around the world of hockey. But like the extracurricular was what made that, that doc really, really fantastic. But the, no, they did a great job. I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, I I enjoyed it too. It was 
I, I, when I first saw it, it was like crime and untold stories or whatever the word was. Usually it's something and you never see a hockey involved in anything like that. And I'm like, there's no way. But yeah, they did a great job. Um, before I forget, because I'm, I'm, I'm pretty forgetful, you did uh, Ice Guardians. And it's a lot about enforcers and kind of the price they pay and, and that sort of side of hockey and just how hard it can be. Um, concussions definitely play a factor. I got to ask you, because it's not always just the fighting, it's the physical side of the game with you know you have a daughter in in hockey uh, what do you think about because i hear that women's hockey is a really high rate of concussions i don't know how recent the last study i heard just because they're not trained to hit so do you think that they should be playing contact hockey and also uh the state of concussions in hockey as a whole any thoughts on any of it yeah i do and i talked to a lot of other females about this too coaches and past players and i really think they should just get modified hitting in for the girls a big part of the problem with the girls game is the girls can fucking skate now. I mean, look at Kendall Coyne, right? She was out there with the NHL all-stars and she was, you know, she beat six or seven NHL all-stars, right? Like that are getting paid millions of dollars. Like the girls can skate and it, and they can usually do it younger too, much better than the boys because they don't have the testosterone to where a lot of times the boys like, Oh, why do I need to work on a jab step or a punch turn or all these, like I'll just go over the blue line, fucking hammer the puck and score. Like, I got 35 goals last year. I don't need to work on those fine-tuned things. But once you get up to the pros where everybody can shoot the puck hard, but they can do all those little things you didn't work on, then you fall down, right? So the girls tend to be where they're like, well, I can't just come off my off leg over the blue line and hammer wrist shot and go bar down. So I have to really work on, like, my daughter's edge work is phenomenal. Like, her punch turns, jab steps, like, her pivots, blades on either side, like, she can skate. So what they can do is the girls can really skate now, but then the contact game to game, it like it, it's anybody's guess. Some games, the refs are letting them run over each other. And it's like, oh, that's considered regular body contact. Then other games, it's like, nope, that's body contact and it's, it's a whistle. So a lot of the times the girls put themselves in vulnerable positions or head down because they're not ready for the contact, right? And then they get concussions. And yeah, I, when I was looking at the stats during Ice Guardians, girls actually had a higher rate of concussions, even though there's no fighting, because we were looking at the fighting thing, because that was the easy scapegoat to blame all the drug problems and anything with hockey. It was like, oh, it's the fighting. Once we get rid of that, there'll be no more problems, right? <laughs> and as we're seeing now, that fighting's almost gone, and you hate to say it, but you're seeing these suicides and these things, like, they're going up since it all happened right so like we always tried to say with ice guard that wasn't our main message but it is so much more than the fighting mental illness is a deeper thing it has more to do than just bought than physical concussions and stuff like that too even a lot of guys you know and i i've talked about this in interviews how many guys go from you've had a scripted curriculum or scheduled curriculum since you're like 12 playing competitive hockey right you're in an academy then you go off to whl and then to pros and then in your late 20s or early 30s the game's over for you right if you were lucky enough to have that long as a pro you know god bless those that can go further but the game's getting faster and faster you're seeing guys careers end quicker and quicker where just the depression of that you're so used to hanging out with the guys and going on the road trip and work out here and eat there and then all of a sudden it's just over and then you know even with guys like you and other guys trying to help guys, like at least Brady, you're retired now, so you can help and you have puck support. But, you know, even guys will talk about, they try to connect with guys that are still playing, but they're still playing. They're on the schedule. So they're not going to call their buddy five times a week to make sure he's okay. Right. Their lives are busy. 
So just the change in the regimen being so drastic sends a lot of guys into depression. And, you know, a lot of people want to say, oh, that was the head trauma. That was this. I was like, it's a deeper issue than we'd love it to be just one thing all the time. Like, oh, if you could just correct this, then it would be fine. Or just this and then mental illness would be good. It's not the case. Now, I'm not saying that concussions, punches to the head and all that, like those don't help. Right. But they are not the only thing because you can have guys on the far end of the spectrum that were enforcers or were boxers or were MMA guys and they don't have a problem. Right. And then you can have other people, even my brother who didn't really play contact sports, you know, he's battled addiction and had meant like, you know, it, it, it is always coming from usually early childhood trauma. Look at what happened to yourself, my brother too. And that's normally where it stems from. Now, of course, everybody and their path to recovery is different. So it isn't always that like, look, we're doing Jordan Tutu. Same thing, right? It was early childhood trauma from growing up in Rankin Inlet, right? The, the isolation, the, you know, the drinking up there, right? That, that caused it in his family. So it, it, it isn't, you know, so I know I went way off tangent there with it being in the girls league, but I do think to answer your question for girls, I think they should have modified hitting because I think the girls would train and be safer. And I've asked the girls and the coaches and they think it would be better too. like train them earlier to brace it. The game's getting so fast now that the incidental contact is quickly becoming collisions anyway. And you're still seeing the concussions. So I, I think it would be healthier. And I think if you just ask the girls, the women who are taking the risk, I think you'd be shocked. I think it'd be like 99% of them would say, yes, just give us a modified hitting, right? Get rid of open ice hits. Those are pretty, pretty much gone in the NHL and stuff anyway, too. So just get rid of those. And I think you'd have a, a great, you already have a great game of the girls game, but I think you could make it just a little better. Uh, yeah, I agree. I agree 100%. Um, I have to say, I just, I, I kind of assumed you would see it that way, uh, but you never want to assume anything. Uh, lots to unpack there and don't ever apologize for going off tangent. I love it. You were speaking my language there. Uh, I went last night uh, with uh, with the group. I'm going to talk about it after I, I let you go at the end of the show a little bit more about the night, but I went and saw uh, Gabor Mate speak last night, Dr. Gabor Mate. And um, yeah, just tremendous. Like I followed him for the last 15 years since I started to struggle with my own addiction. And, and starting to try to understand that. And he really speaks to that is, you know, it always comes back to trauma. And, and I learned and, that because I interviewed Dr. Gabor Mate for the Culture High, right? So this isn't me. I'm not that smart. I've just interviewed these people. So I've listened to what they've said. And it, as soon as he said it, it made me look at addiction entirely a different way. Because I was like, boom, that's it. That's, that's the missing thing. But society likes to be able to put Band-Aids and say, no, 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 no it's Brady. It's because you played hockey and you fought and you have concussions. That's why you're this way. And it was like, it's so much deeper. And then you, you then you can have people wh where that argument goes out the windows when you see people that like never even played sports, right. Or never had head trauma. And it's like, okay, well, what about them? And there's a large majority of them in recovery. And you find the one I think I see almost unanimously is abuse in some form as a kid, verbal, mental, sexual, like that is like, and like Gabor talks about, each one of those exponentially is like two to 300% increases their chance of being dependent addict on something at some point in their, in their lives, right? And sometimes it can take that traumatic event to trigger it, to get it, because you have some of those other people that are like straight A students and seem to manage everything all the way to like first year college and then something happened and boom, they go off the rails, right? So it's but when you you go back to Gabber's research it always to me that was like it made me look at at recovery and people who battle addiction in an entirely different way 
if I no longer look at them as like, oh, look at that addict, I look at them as being like, look at that person that had a rough childhood or didn't get the support or didn't have a moral compass to help them when they hit a bump in the road. I, uh, I'm kind of like, I've kind of identified it in the past, but you know, it's, it's really just really kind of struck me is because you talk about, you know, college student going away or fine and then go, you know, goes away and then has something trigger that traumatic event. And that was sort of what happened to me. And I, I can't say for sure the, that's the reason because I don't consciously remember it happening. But sometimes I think these things can happen without us knowing. But that's when things really started to fall apart for me is when I moved to Swift Current and being and I remember being in uh, the coach's office and seeing the team pictures on the wall and seeing Graham James and all these pictures, um, you know, like next to Sheldon Kennedy. And, and, and it was I, it, I had a really hard time. Uh, just being, you know, there in that kind of energy, uh, myself having to be a, a sexual abuse survivor. Um, but that's the thing is sometimes people can carry it for a long time and, and it, everything looks okay. And then something, you know, something kind of like that can happen and put them on this trajectory of, of hell uh, that so many people uh, right now are on i can't even tell you how many people that i know that i talk to that are really really struggling and have been for a long time and pretend to kind of hold it all together all the time and that's sort of a whole nother uh, maybe topic for discussion but it's, it's hard to have those conversations because of the stigma around it it's really hard reading it's i i uh you know i'm inspired by you how you hit it right in the head and even in your opening video talk about being you know, a sexual abuse survivor. And because that's a hard, man, I just had a friend of mine died this last year. Um, giant agent in Hollywood, partnered in one of the biggest firms of their, represented Margot Robbie and Chadwick Boseman, right? Like career-wise, you would have looked and been like, this guy is, and he was killing it, right? But I just talked about, because I'd heard about his passing, it was all over entertainment media, right? And I was like, what happened to Chris? I just talked to him like a, and it, it, people can struggle, like when you say struggle in silence and they can seem okay. And it can be that one participating event or something that can really trigger it. And the biggest thing is kind of like you almost clicking in now, Brady, those triggers that you have, like we don't just identify. And I know because I had one of my best friends go manic bipolar, like no one just goes, Oh, you know what? I think I have a mental illness. I'm going to go get checked out today. Like you don't, you don't think you just, you are not feeling good. Right. And you don't understand you're working out and you're like, I still don't feel good. And things might be perfect as far as life, as far as career and this and that. And you're like, but you don't feel good. You're off. I, I don't know what it's like to be depressed, but I've had my brother and stuff come try to explain it to me. We're like, Adam, you don't understand. Like everything can seem good and you can look good and, but you don't feel good. Right. And those things can be, but you also don't necessarily identify that they're happening either. You don't know, like you don't wake up. That was the biggest thing. I remember when my friend Vic finally got diagnosed as manic bipolar. You can see my little guys just got in from jujitsu here, right? That they, they, you know, he was so happy when he actually got a diagnosis because he's like, oh, I'm not just like out of my mind. Like there is something because you don't wake up and just go, oh, you know what? I think I have a mental illness and that's why I see things differently, right? Sometimes it takes and it's hard because it's something you don't want to talk about. So people don't discuss it. So you're, you're suffering in silence until finally maybe you have somebody else's experience or somebody else that's had bipolar and they're like, Hey, I think you're suffering from something. You want to come talk to someone, right? Like that. And it seems so simple, but I remember my buddy Vic, the day he got diagnosed, he felt there's this giant weight off his shoulder. Cause he thought he was just, 
you know, because everybody's like, what are you just being an ass? This is before the term mental illness was around and before you even really knew what bipolar was. Like, you know, he just thought he was crazy and people just thought he was being an asshole. Right. And he was like, he was so relieved. He's like, yes, there's, I actually have a condition and I need to get treated and I need to take lithium. And he's doing fantastic. Now he runs marathons to get himself like better and takes his lithium. And he's done raising two great young boys and successful marriage and career. But I remember hearing that from him. He's like, Adam, it was so nice to know that I just didn't see the world in a different way, that there was a condition. And I, I remember that was a big learning moment for me. And I'm like, yeah, I guess you don't wake up and go, oh, you know what? I think I might have psychiatric problems or mental illness. I should probably go get, you just know you're off or you're not connecting or normally the way you can kind of figure out is when everybody, when all your close relationships, when you're not connecting with them anymore, right? That's usually the telltale sign that nowadays people are more aware and they're like, hey, I think he might be going through something, right? That at least we know that these campaigns you know, are, I think, working because even the term mental illness, eight out of 10 people know that now. Whereas, you know, and even now, instead of looking at addicts, I know me and most people I'm around look at somebody in the path to recovery and don't think of them as a write-off, right? Having worked with Danny Trey, Jordan Tutu, my brother, getting to know you, like I've seen it now where I'm like, oh, that's just their path, right? And God bless them that they're going on the right path and they're open and, and, a lot of part, I think everyone could probably use from recovery that, you know, now working on another film with someone in recovery with Tutu is that the way you guys express yourself to talk about things and go to therapy, like, I think everybody could use that. Like, you know, we just did an interview with Brian McGratton and it was funny because our director didn't really know who Big Earn was, right? And I was like, oh man, you have to interview Big Earn. Him and Tutu met each other. They helped get each other sober. They were great friends. Like, and we interviewed him for Ice Guardians. He's one of my favorite interviews, like Big Earn. And he was like, my director was in tears. Big Earn cried three times. He was sharing, like my director's like, that's one of the most inspiring interviews I've ever done. And he apologized to me. We have an ongoing joke of like, oh, producer of the day, director of the day. And he was like, Adam, I will never question one of your interviews again. Brian McGratton was one of the best interviews I've ever done in my 400 interviews of interviewing people. Right. And Brian was getting so emotional. And we're like, we're sorry. He's like, no, don't apologize. He's like, this is good for me. I need to talk about these things. I need to move. And that's something I think everybody could use. Like when I've sat in on, you know, uh, recovery sessions or I said like, I was moved. We were all in tears listening to Brian and you're like, man, I could be a better person. I could talk about my feelings. I could be more in touch with things and probably help me connect to my kids and connect to my wife better. That's something I learned from just going to recovery sessions with family members and friends that I, I think is a valuable thing that everybody could use to be honest. No, I, I agree a hundred percent. And that's the thing is when you in recovery, a lot of the principles are just ways to be better people. And uh, you know, you, you, what I heard when you're talking about kind of, you know, you're listing like Danny Treo and, and Jordan Tutu and, and people that have gotten their lives back bigger and one of them as well. It, it comes down to like being vulnerable and being honest and being able to, to share those things because I'm telling you every single time, all the friends I've lost to suicide or overdose, uh, it was that they were, they were struggling on their own, uh, either with their mental illness till finally they took their own life or with their drug addiction where they just felt like they didn't deserve the help or didn't know how to take the help. Or, uh, I just saw so, and I've been in that situation myself where it, it just is 
and I've watched my friends go through it. And I had a friend uh, that I tried to help, uh, Kevin Kerbison, who came out here and he ended up passing away on Christmas alone in a homeless shelter. And I remember when he was here and I was trying to detox him. And it was really for the first time in my life that I'd been clean for any length of time and trying to help somebody who had been in the situation that I'd been in like directly. And like it went well for a few days. Um, but to, to see somebody and then finally him make the decision where it's like, yeah, I don't want to do this on the eighth or ninth or 10th day. And there's not much you can do it was it was pretty hard to to have to to watch it all unfold it's so it's so hard and i just i i just know that the common theme is that people myself included when i was in that situation i felt like i had to do it on my own and that nobody cared or that nobody would listen or that there was no solution until finally just give up and uh you know the percentage of people that make it out of it is 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 unfortunately very low but there are people and, and i love uh, the inmate number one documentary. I, I love it so much. I love all your work, but that Danny Trejo is just an absolute warrior and an incredible person and just an inspiration. If people are watching or listening to this, if you have not seen inmate number one, I mean, you could say for all of your, your, your docus documentaries there, Adam, but that one, especially people, I think a lot identify with the, uh, with the substance abuse and mental health on this show. So I think it's in the comeback, the redemption, it's incredible. I, I agree. That's, that's the, <clears throat> that's the one like that was the first one that we sold to a studio and you know until bisbing uh surpassed it was our most successful one but that one's still trending it's doing better than three identical strangers which was shortlisted for an academy award like it is and i think it's danny's message is just so infectious and he swears by it it isn't just a phrase that everything good that has happened to him is a direct result of helping somebody else because as soon as he started being open being honest and helping others helping others, just good things kept coming to him, right? It was like, that's how he got on his first movie set. That's how he booked his first role. It's how he got an agent. It's how we like, step by step, he even goes before that about how he, he was helping the neighbor do the yard because the husband had died. And then another neighbor was like, why do you do her yard? How much is she charged? He's like, nothing. I just, she's in my neighborhood. I want to keep doing it. And then the guy donated like $6,000 worth of lawn equipment. He says, well, as long as you keep doing her yard and you do my yard, I'll give you all this stuff. And then Danny's like, my landscaping company literally went from me and one other inmate to like 10 because we had all the equipment. And that all came from me helping a neighbor, not expecting. And the key part is that he says, though, is you cannot expect anything in return. You do it because it's good for you to make you. That's part of your healing. Danny does it to heal him. So he's like, it's this great selfishness where he's like, that's my new addiction. That's what I like to do. I like to help others because it helps me to heal. But then in return, it helps others, which then reciprocates back to him. Like, I remember those days when Danny was breaking this down and us sitting in there, we were kind of like, it made all of us be like, man, I can be a way better person. If Danny's able to do this, when he got out of prison, and like, he didn't get out of prison until he was in his 40s or late 30s, right? Like, most people are like, oh, my life's over already or whatever. His life didn't even really begin, right, till his mid-40s. And then he hit his stride in like his 50s and 60s. So, that's another thing Danny was talking about. We're like, oh, my time. And he's like, don't think about it like that. Day at a time. He's like, I know you hear that. And that's why now he goes back to prisons, as you see in the film, all the time to speak, which you know as someone that's been incarcerated, you don't want to go back there. Even if you know you're going out, right? It's very hard for him to go back there, right? But he does it because he knows if I can just give these guys a day, just a day, where they're like, hey, today wasn't so bad. I'm going to battle through tomorrow. He's like, then that's my way of giving back and it makes him feel good. So no, the inmate's a special one for sure.
it's uh, I know you probably want to get going here, Adam, but it, it just brings up something and it's so true. I, I really feel the same way through my my recovery has been able to to be of service as, as much as possible. And it, it, you said it perfectly the first time we talked, Ray, where you're like, you found a purpose. You found yeah. something connecting with people. Right. And all you can do is share your story and help others. And you're doing that. I love the way you support you know, everything where you've given shout outs to Riley and then to other people in recovery and being somebody to be there and being so honest and open about your abuse and what you went through and being there and wearing it like it's a badge of honor. Like, yeah, I was in jail. I, you know, was this far to come in. I did heroin. I did it all, but I'm proud of it. Like now I got no skeletons in my closet. I've worn them all, right? I made all those mistakes and now I'm in recovery. That, that to me, I, I, when I look from the outside, I'm like, there's a part of me that's kind of like, man, that must feel really uplifting like weight off your back just to be like oh, like that's why even i enjoy podcasts because i can kind of talk about all these things right and i kind of call these I, I find it great to talk about this stuff and think about it and look about it in objective ways and i talk about because even uh toots reached out to me he's like hey i know like he knew your name through hockey and stuff and i was like yeah brady's doing really good and toots was like yeah so that's when he he sent the thing he's like yeah i gave him a shout out and did stuff like that like you know and that's and now Toots, that's what he's doing, right? Is he goes around and speaks all over and helps people that are going through the same thing. And he's a huge inspiration to, uh, you know, people from none of it, right? That sometimes, like, especially there, you're really isolated. It's really expensive to, like, it's physically hard to get out of there, right? Because plane tickets are really expensive. It's like flying to Hawaii and you're in this isolated, you know, community that is, they all love it when they're on the land, right? When they're on the land and they can be in touch with themselves and, you know, go out hunting and everything. Yes, buddy. Okay, we'll go to the bathroom. There's a bathroom in there. You're a big boy. All right, well, I got to get these these Bradskis home. They just finished jujitsu here. So, Brady, sorry we couldn't chat longer, but I wish I always love our talks, and I'm always down to jump on. So, uh, thank you for, for having me on and, and promoting my work. And any way I can help you and with your cause, you know, I'm always down. Yeah, we'll have to do this again when uh, maybe when the documentary comes out. When uh, when can we see expect to see the Jordan Tutu uh, documentary? So we have one last shoot with him. We're going back to Nashville in October. Um, uh, don't know the dates yet. Kind of checking on his schedule, and then we'll be editing for six to eight months. And so hopefully, maybe at like Hot Docs or TIFF this next year. Like I know TIFF just passed, but you know, obviously do some in Toronto and then looking at where it would premiere too. Obviously we have to do something up in Rankin Inlet for, for none of it. And I want to do something in Kelowna where he lives now and I'm from, but we definitely want to try to do one of the big festivals like Sundance, TIFF or Tribeca first, if we can. So yeah, it should, if all goes well, it should release this spring or, or fall if we're waiting for TIFF. Awesome. I can't wait. Uh, I'll be, I'll be waiting in line wherever I, wherever I have to, to watch well, him. Yeah. You, you heard it from me and i'll be on air so you can you can quote me you got yourself a ticket and plus one brother wherever it is for that premiere is you can get yourself there you can come sit with us and uh well i don't usually sit during my premiere so i'm always kind of pacing in the back because i'm emotionally like that's that's like your your kid that's been you've been birthing you know for 18 months you walk back and like and then you're seeing it with an audience and you're like oh they're digging it or they're not or they're emotional like you know, because it, it, for me, it's different than just like a scripted movie. It's a personal story of someone that trusted you to capture it. So, and of course, we don't just go and do it. Tutu is going to be heavily involved. Like, that's accurate. But I can tell you working with him, man, like, he's enjoyed it. Something we didn't even think about is he's like, guys, thank you for bringing me back through this. Because everything was such a blur after Terrence, you know, had passed away. 
that he's like, even me, I don't remember. I blacked out a lot of moments and then I was fast tracked to the pros shortly after. So he's really just enjoyed the process of with his family and kind of finding out some of the stuff that went on that he didn't know and going through it again, he's in recovery, right? So all this is great healing for him. And he's so, so admirable to just see how he hits everything and like nothing's off the limits. Like details about his brother's death. He's like, nope, let's talk about it. Like details about the police and like, Everything is just like, nope, we are, we are addressing the issue. We are no longer hiding this, right? This is, I want to know everything. I want to go through it. I want to feel it. He's like, I want to, that's how I'm going to, you know, continue to work on myself is I can't hide behind anything. I can't be like, well, I'm too scared to hear that or this kind of stuff, right? So Yeah, and, and by him doing that, it's going to help so many people and, of course, himself as well. But, uh, yeah, like I said, I can't wait. And thank you so much. I'll be there with Flying Colors. Keep up the good work. Say hello to Riley and uh, enjoy the time in the rink this winter. But we'll, we'll chat soon here. Uh, thanks again for your time, man. I know you're so busy. Oh, my pleasure, brother. Anytime, man. You've got my – anytime I can make it on, I'll be on, brother. All right, buddy. We'll, talk, we'll chat soon. Peace. All right, guys, that's Adam Scorgy from Scorgy Productions. Make sure you check them out on Instagram. And we'll be right back to wrap up the show. I'm having a hell of a time finding the video here. But here we are, our friends over at Pride Tape. Pocket to Hell and Back is brought to you by Pride Tape. Pride Tape is a badge of support from teammates, coaches, parents, and pros to young LGBTQ players. It shows every player that they belong playing the sport they love and that we're all on the same team. Show your support for teammates, coaches, and fans in the LGBTQ community by wrapping your stick with Pride Tape. Every roll of tape will make an impact in sports and beyond. Inclusion starts with leadership. Check out some of the ideas of how you can get involved at youcanplayproject.org. Check out Pride Tape at pridetape.com. For more information, you can send an email to Aubrey at PrideTape.com. That's A-U-B-R-E-E, Aubrey at PrideTape.com. You can find PrideTape on Facebook.com slash PrideTape, on Twitter at PrideTape, and at PrideTape on Instagram. PrideTape thanks all of you for being champions for change. Thank you to our friends over there at PrideTape. Thanks again to Adam Scorgi. If you're watching on Facebook... Can you please go over to YouTube and subscribe to the Hockey to Hell and Back YouTube channel? Uh, if you don't want to do that, share it on Facebook, please. If you're on YouTube, please press that like, subscribe, turn on the notifications. As I always like to say, as the kids say, I appreciate everybody's support. It is, uh, it's been a, it's been a journey, honestly, to get here. And I, I honestly, I don't take it for granted. Uh, sometimes I get, I, I struggle. I've been struggling. It's no secret. I've been struggling. I think, you know, anyone close to me kind of knows what's going on in my life. I'm not going to break it down here on the podcast, but the last couple months have been tremendously hard. Also very great as well, but just a few things that never, it never seemed, can, I think it ever just seemed to be just like level in my life um but i continue to work and continue to fight um for for the things that i need to fight for in my life and uh you know sometimes it feels like i'm fighting for my life during the day to be honest and i think some people can relate to that some days it's hard to just get out of bed and find that 
even if it's everything's going great sometimes it's hard to find that for me anyways i know there's people that watch and listen to this show that can relate and uh sometimes things happen in our lives that kind of really really make things difficult I'm making a reel today on instagram and i'm going to post it later on but adam and i were talking in the show about kind of how we we how he well he mentioned how he sees people differently uh, particularly addicts after you know his brother and hearing different things in the perspective dr gabor mate talking about trauma and why people are in that situation to begin with and i want to pose this question on my podcast in case you don't follow me on social media you'll see the real later on social media but i have a question to ask you guys if you see a homeless person number one what is your response? If you see somebody on the street begging for money, you can see that they're homeless. You can see that they're in despair. What is what is your initial response? I don't mean out loud necessarily, but your internal response. Do you have the inclination to, to turn your head or to put your head down or to not make eye contact or to not have a conversation? You don't have to answer in the comments. You don't have to send me a message with your answer. I'm asking you, ask yourselves this question. How do you handle that situation? The second part of it is if you are one of the, I think, very few people who really stop to engage and want to help. I know there are some amazing people out there and probably many of you watching this show because we have a great community here that, that do help. But I still don't think enough people do it. My reel on Instagram is about how do we help people who are homeless and clearly addicted on the street if they're begging for money? I think it's really, number one, we have to understand why they're there in the first place. I'm going to say nine times out of ten, maybe, probably ten times out of ten, it's to do with drugs or alcohol, I think primarily drugs in my experience, that's why I was there. And if somebody's begging for money on the corner, do you really think that they want to be there? Do you think they're enjoying their life? Let me tell you what it's like to be addicted to opiates. In a few words, I'm not gonna go into great detail. But unless you've lived it, you have no idea what it's like first off you have no idea what it's like to feel the relief the first time you do it and and every time following especially if you have underlying trauma if you've been abused if you've been abandoned your brain is almost tricked and it's uncontrollable where you just escape and all that pain is gone and it's like you found what you've been looking for but the other side of it is that your body soon becomes physically dependent. And if you don't have it, you simply cannot function. And it's not just, oh, you're debilitated. You are in so much agony and pain and throwing up and diarrhea, can't sleep, can't even walk from the, from the bed to the bathroom, sometimes crawling because you have no energy. This is called withdrawal and it lasts for a while. Different for everybody, five to 10 days, I would say. 
But post-acute withdrawal syndrome can last for months, which means you don't sleep, though the physical ailments are gone and you're not in pain anymore. Your bones aren't aching. You're not throwing up anymore. You can't sleep for three months. One time I didn't sleep for 35 days until finally I gave in and I relapsed because I just couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't take it. The thought of being in withdrawal is so scary that people will do anything. That's why people beg for money. That's how people end up being homeless because they burn every bridge in their life and their whole life becomes around getting and using this substance. One, because of it, it makes them escape their trauma, but pretty soon it just becomes about not being in withdrawal, not being the term dope sick. And it's all encompassing. It'll take everything. It'll take every, it's a 365 day, 24 seven job, period. You want to talk about a full-time job that's being addicted to opiates. So when you see somebody begging on the corner for money, you know, I just share a story. I was in Toronto a couple weeks ago and I had some time to just cruise around and walk by myself, downtown Toronto. And I always make time and stop and and talk to people who are homeless on the street. Always. I'll make the people I'm in the car with sometimes pull over so that I can go talk to them. And every single time, if I have it and if I can, I give them money. And I'll tell you what, I don't have a lot of money still sitting here. I'm doing a lot better than I was. If you've been following me along for two and a half years, I'm a lot better than I was then. But I really can't afford to to be giving people money. But there's a lot of people that don't want to give homeless people or essentially drug addicted people money because they don't want to support their habit. By you not giving them money, you're not going to fix them. You're not going to fix their addiction issues. Okay. I asked this gentleman the other day when I was down in Toronto, I said, what, what do you need the money for? Can you tell me the truth? That's all I said. I didn't say anything about me or that I was a recovering addict at first or anything like that. I just said, can you tell me? He goes, yeah, I need it for dope. And I said, I appreciate your honesty. I gave him a little bit of my story and, and I gave him some money. Uh, I actually went to the ATM to pull out more money so I could give it to him and give him a lot. I gave him 50 bucks, 60 bucks uh, because I know the situation he's in and I could see that he was in full-blown withdrawal and I knew that at any given moment there was a good chance that he was not going to be begging for money and instead he would be robbing a store stealing something from a store breaking into a car stealing a car running amok on the community because that's what desperate people do you could say to me Brady well what if he goes and what if he overdoses and dies with the money that you gave him? Well, I really hope that that would never happen. But I feel comfortable with making this decision because I've lived it. I've been on that side where all I want is money. I don't want food. I don't really want to talk to you. I appreciate your kindness and wanting to help. But my body is hurting so bad that nothing else matters. I just need money. I just need drugs. And so... You talk about helping somebody and meeting them where they're at. The next time you see a homeless person asking for money, I suggest giving them money if you really want to help them in that moment. 
That may sound crazy and it's up for debate, but I'm here to, deb to debate whether right now on the live comments or shoot me a message on social media or you can email me brady at pucksupport.com. I am totally open to debate and while we're on the topic, I believe that we need to legalize drugs and give a safe supply and you want to see what that's going to do for society you want to see crime rates drop i've been to jail and i've been to jail because i was a drug addict because i committed crimes to support my addiction and 90 percent of the people i was in jail with were there for the exact same reason and nobody ever asked us why we were using drugs they call it corrections there's no corrections in there. There is no corrections. They don't correct anything. There's no, there's very, very little services or anything that will allow anybody to get better in jail. It's all smoke and mirrors. And then people get out and they're back in the same circle and they're back in jail, using back in jail, using back in jail until unfortunately a lot of people end up overdosing and dying. If you, we want to get people off the streets and we really want to help, we need to tackle this a whole new way. We need to break it down and build it up from the ground up. Parents, coaches, friends, family, whoever have conversations in your house, in your dressing room, at your workplace, everywhere. Do more to educate yourselves and then pass on that knowledge to the people that you love and care about. And hey, even strangers. We need to end the stigma of addiction. We need to have a greater understanding for why people are in this situation to begin with. Have compassion, show kindness. Lift people up instead of kicking them when they're already down. And we all need to do better to educate ourselves and those around us to be better and to hopefully show people that there is a better way to deal with mental illness because so many times it ends with people self-medicating and addiction. That certainly was the case for me. I'm going to say it again, and I stand firm on this. The next time you see a homeless person and you're thinking about wanting to help them, but you don't want to give them money, just give them money. That's what they want. They don't want food because you can't eat if you're in withdrawal. I took food from people and threw it right in the garbage because I didn't want to be rude. Like, yes, thank you. Just because I didn't want to be like, no, and, and seem ungrateful because I didn't want to say because I didn't want to be judged. Say, no, I just need money because I'm in withdrawal and my body hurts. So I'd take the food and throw it out. And I saw so many people do that. Sometimes they, you know, I needed food and sometimes I would eat the food. But at the end of the day, if you're begging for money, it's because you need drugs. Getting food is a lot easier. He would just say, go, you could just go up to someone and say, hey, I'm really hungry. Could you please buy me a sandwich? And it would not take long for somebody downtown Toronto to buy you a sandwich. But sitting there with a cup of money or asking for money, we all know where that money is going. But I'm telling you, you can help somebody meet them where they're at and you can help your communities. You will lower the crime rate, even if it's on a very, very small scale, even if it's only for two hours that a person doesn't commit crime to get what they need. 
it's a different perspective. But until there's a regulated supply and until people are met where they're at, then this is the this is how I'm going to continue to handle it. And people that know me have seen it. I've I've spent hours and hours in the last year and spent probably well over a thousand dollars just giving money to homeless people, money that I couldn't afford. And I don't sit here and say, oh, I want any you know, pats on the back or good job, Brady, or anything. I don't do it. I don't turn the camera on. I don't tell people about it. I don't go around. I do it because I know what it's like to be in that situation. And I hope none of you watching this show ever have to know what it's like to feel like it, feel what it's like to be there or have someone you love or care about be in that situation. Anyways, that's it for me. That's my little rant. That's my little rant. But as I like to say, before I go, I'll probably say it five more times. I want to give a very special thank you to my family down in Lowbanks, Dunville area. The Miner family. I love you guys dearly. Thank you uh, for having us this past weekend. Went to Taylor Sykes's wedding. Congratulations to Taylor and Shelby Sykes. Congratulations uh, to my buddy Taylor Sykes. Uh, got married this weekend. Beautiful wedding down in St. Catharines. It was an honor to be there. And got to stay at the minor household and got to go on the ice uh, with with Jack and Ainsley and Harper. There's a picture of me, Jack, and Ainsley. Got to go on the ice with them. I don't have one of me and Harper. There's Ainsley. There's another one. Uh, but thank you to the minor family. And thank you to my buddy, Harper, who signed me this card. It's from last year, but I'll take it. I need the updated one. He signed it right here in the top corner. Thank you, Harper. I promised I'd show it on my show. There you are, buddy. Always great going down there. As, uh, as tough as it honestly is, it's... I cherish you guys in my heart and I love you like family. And that's all I'm going to say right now because I don't want to get into it. I'm, I love you guys. And I can't wait to see you again soon. And the four on four tournament announcement here. I got to try to switch my brain before I fall apart here. The four on four on the pond tournament is happening the end of February. Puck support will have multiple teams in the tournament up here in Muskoka. And I brought that up because the minor family has already got their Airbnb. Puck support, come support us. If you want to sponsor one of the teams, please reach out to us. Uh, team at pucksupport.com, T-E-A-M at pucksupport.com. And uh, would love to see everybody up here. Beautiful Lake Muskoka, 25 plus rinks right on the on the lake outdoor rink tournament unbelievable time and i can't wait to do it and of course we play uh in their honor those that we have lost uh and for the minor family to be a part of it last year and again this year just means so much uh, to us especially so can't wait to see you everybody up here also i know elaine is watching and i had notes but I, I misplaced them, to be perfectly honest, last minute before the show. Uh, but we are hosting an event. She is hosting an event uh, down 
in St. Andrews. Is that correct, Elaine? St. Andrews near uh, Lucan, the Lucan area. Can you throw up the date, Elaine? I will be speaking, and so will the Smith family, uh, the, the parents and, and brother of the late Nick Smith, who tragically took his own life in 2019. Uh, it will be at the St. Mary's Golf Club. We got Doug, Elaine's partner, November the 12th, and that's at 1... St. Mary's, number 12. Okay, so St. Mary's on November the 12th. Uh, for more information, check it out on Facebook. It can be seen on the Puck Support Facebook page. And also uh, follow Junior C Hockey Volunteer. She's, Elaine's doing incredible work with the PJHL. One to four. There you have it. Sorry, guys, I lost my notes. That's what we call Puck Support right there as well. A little nice assist. Three assists. We got Brody Kerbison in there too. Uh, so yeah, more info on that coming. Uh, but I really hope to see everybody down there. It is free of charge. We're talking mental health, substance abuse. And uh, yeah, I really hope to, to see everyone down there. I'm excited to, to go down there again. That's where I spoke at the Nick Smith Memorial Golf Tournament, uh, which was, uh, which was an, again, hard but uh, incredible experience to be a part of uh, under the worst circumstances um, but being able to speak at, at Nick's golf tournament meant a lot to me and uh, it's just a, a really great spot and I, I hope to see everybody out there um, I know there's people that are going to be driving from the city and, and an hour or two each way and uh, you know it, it's going to be worth it I can't wait to hear the Smith family share their story I know it's going to be hard for them but these are the stories that are going to make the change and ignite the change, the conversations. This is what needs to happen. These are real stories and this can happen to anybody, but together we are stronger and that's what this is about. So can't wait for it. Thank you to Elaine Sterk for putting that on. I know her partner, Doug has been a, a tremendous help as well. Bonnie and Clyde, there they are. Next Monday, Sorry, next Tuesday, August, October. Let me holy choking on my words. Next Tuesday, October the 4th at 7 p.m. It screwed me up because it's not a Monday and it's not at 8 p.m. And we just changed it. I don't know why I said August. It is my birth month, but the 4th of October. 7 p.m. Kelly Rudy is back again from Sportsnet Hockey Night in Canada. Can't wait to connect with Kelly. Set your reminders now. I hope to see everybody there next Tuesday. If you're listening, please share it with your friends. Like, subscribe, share, turn on notifications, all that stuff. Tell your friends we don't pay for advertising over here. So please help me. Help us. Help Puck Support more than anything. Uh, PuckSupport.com if you want to wear some swag. We have a special on these toques going on starting tomorrow. We have a bunch of other stuff. And, uh, of course, there's a name of a hockey player in all of our stuff that we've lost. And tonight, this episode was in memory of Andre Payette. He's here in my toque. Sending my condolence to the Payette family and all those feeling that tragic loss. If you're struggling, 
please reach out to somebody. You're not alone, whether you're dealing with mental illness, substance abuse, any sort of addiction. If you're just struggling at all, please reach out. Please reach out. You are not alone. Let me tell you, I struggle every day and I know so many people who do too, but having people that we can lean on has been the world of difference for me and something that I feel very grateful for. I no longer have to carry all of that pain, all of my secrets alone. And that has been a game changer for me. But you're not alone. You're not alone. Until next Tuesday, stay kind, be more compassionate, especially towards those dealing with addiction, homelessness, mental illness. Be kind. Shout out to my family out there in BC, especially my daughter, Brooklyn, and my son, Brody. Love you guys. We will see you all next Tuesday. Enjoy the song, Hockey Dell and Back by Chad Charles Campbell here at the end. The official version will be dropping October 7th on Spotify, so stay tuned for that. We'll see you next Tuesday. Remember, make it a great day if you so choose. Hockey was my life, rookie of the year Swift as a Bronco, they stuff in my gear Past the pain and insane, yearning for that buzz Twelve your journey through the depths of hell Criminal fentanyl, I struggled, I fell Abuse confused as a shadow of who I once was. Can't sleep for rest this week. Go down that adrenaline. I need to get my life gear back on track. Used to toe drag him like Wayne Gretzky. And now I'm toe-tet and homeless on Hastings Intervenous drugs weren't in the gang notes The wrong kind of high to ride the lightning Sideboard ignored hot and frightened Hockey to hell and back was my recovery road Can't sleep restless week. Up all night, a dread on a need to get my life here back on track. Emotions drained, I can't stop crying. Send my reflection, no sense lying. My inspirations are getting killing back. Mental health over hockey. Gotta get people talking. Ignite the chain up again. It is real, but the soul is lost. The game changers were my former convictions. Now I live for the fuck addiction. I got honest to honor the ones we lost. Finally doing what I'm meant to do. 
Step on your blade, you can follow me too. Give me your ear to hockey and hear in that podcast. Can't sleep restless week. Up all night, I dread a beat. I need to get my life here back on track. Emotions strained, I can't stop crying. Except my reflection, no sense lying. My inspiration's hockey to kill and back. Pretty leaves won't 